Last Sunday, I shared a brief story about an American devotional writer. Writes about a woman who travels to Africa, and uh, she hires a bunch of guides and carriers for the journey. And the first day, they made enormous progress in terms of the miles that they traveled. And then the second day, the carriers just sat and refused to move. And so this American traveler asked the head carrier and guide, why aren't we moving? Why? We got tons of ground to cover, to which you were here last Sunday. The guide said, why? The head guide said, first day we traveled way too far and too fast. And now we're waiting for our souls to catch up to our bodies. Um, Ten months that I was away was for me to have my soul essentially kept to catch up to my body. Felt a little bit of that coming on this morning as well. I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. This sermon series is painful for me to preach because it's so personal. And I'm not just teaching you guys, I'm living it. And so um, it's been kind of a raw, emotion-laden thing uh, each week. Um, and I kind of left you guys with these three powerful choose to come around and I want to open it up this morning as we jump in and that is first and foremost most important thing in your life is not what you do but it's who you become none of the things that we care so much about that we spend so much money money and time and energy expending none of this stuff we take with us the thing we take with us for all of eternity is what it's who we become, it's our souls. And secondly, and this is very sobering, no one else but you and I are responsible for our souls. It's not something we delegate to other people. Luke chapter 12, Jesus teaching a parable of the, of the rich fool who, who lives his entire life just storing up treasures here on earth. And Jesus says to the rich fool, you fool, on this very night, what? So it will be required of you. And required is a business term. Business term describes loans that have fallen and that have come due. And Jesus is essentially saying to us, you are the keeper of your soul. I am the keeper of my soul. One day we will have to sit down with God and give account of what we did with our souls. Is that sobering to anybody? We are responsible for what we do ourselves. And then thirdly, of course, is this. If your soul is unhealthy, you can't help anybody. My soul is unhealthy. I can't help anybody. We can only give what we have. Change people will change the world. Transform people will transform the world. Please don't sacrifice your soul at the altar of activism, ministry, or service. Can I get an amen? Don't sacrifice your soul at the altar of any of these things. Mother Teresa was known to have prayed five times a day, meditate and pray five times a day. And her biographers uh, note that she didn't pray to support her work. In other words, she didn't pray so that she, she, she prayed and her ministry was the fruit of her work. Contemplative prayer and meditation resulted in her living a life of devotion to the poorest of the poor. Friend, I have a question for you this morning. How goes your soul? How goes your soul this morning? Hmm? 
So we're on this series, Sacred Rhythms, arranging our lives around these spiritual disciplines or practices of solitude and silence and stillness and Sabbath. By the way, just uh, I want to have fun here this morning. By the way, thank you for praying for me. That was enormously helpful. Was it Ruth and Dan that came up? Thank you, guys. You needed that. Thank you for being the body. Um, as you look at that, uh, Enneagram, anybody a fan of Enneagram? I'm a little cautious of Enneagram because the way that we talk about it, some of us talk about it as if it's like the gospel truth. I just want to make sure. By the way, I miss Carlton here today. I just want to make sure that it's not on par with the Bible. Can I get an amen? So please don't talk like the Enneagram is the end all and be all. Having said that, um, now, having said that, I want to say this. Solitude, the two, threes, and fours of you, solitude, two, threes, and fours, and you, those of us that function from this whole, I am what other people think of me, and that's kind of at the core of a lot of what we do. You are prone to believe the lie that I am what other people think of me. Solitude will be incredibly hard for you, yet it's what will free you. Because you need to be alone to be free from that addiction for people and affirmation and approval and, and, and network. Then, of course, there's the five, six, and sevens of us for whom silence will be key. That deafening noise that you hear inside your head that's constantly trying to fix and figure out and solve and manage, prone to believe the lie, I am what I have. Silence. In silence, you actually might finally be able to hear the voice of God that says good things about you. And then the eights, nines, and ones of us. Are you, anybody an eight in here? Anybody an eight in here? So you know what my morning was like this morning. Okay. Eight, nines. What we need, of course, is to be still. I have no problems being alone. I have no problems being quiet. I actually love those things. What I have difficulty is being still. Because I believe the lie. I am what I do. I am what I accomplish. I am what I perform. I am what I produce. And the most difficult thing for me is to be still. This is going to be an enormously challenging journey for all of us. We began here. Uh, do you remember this picture from last week? In 1853, William Hunt painted this picture called The Light of the World. How many of you guys are familiar with this painting? Okay. This painting has been hijacked by the other version that you and I are aware of. The Swedish looking Jesus. It's, yeah, uh, th this painting right here, the light of the world, 50 years after Hunt painted this thing, he said that it was a divine prompting that enabled him to paint this. It wasn't just a painting. And, and his inspiration for this was Revelation 3.20, where Jesus says what? I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Evangelists have used this painting. Can you go back to that? To, to, to say non, to non Christians, if you don't know Jesus, we want to invite you. The reality is that passage is written to who? Christians. It's written to the church in Laodicea. Jesus is speaking to Christians and he is saying, Open the door, let me come in and eat with you. And eating with someone, table fellowship was the most intimate thing at that time. It's the way of saying, I accept you, I embrace you, I want to be with you. Jesus is criticized by the religious leaders because what? He is constantly eating with the sinners and tax now, this painting is powerful. Let me, let me point out some things to you. Number one, it doesn't have a handle on the outside. Why? Because the door to your heart could only be opened from what? Inside. 
I said last week, have you opened the door of your heart, Christians, and given access to Jesus about what lies in the deepest recesses of your heart? I hate the fact that Jesus is a gentleman. Anybody else? I wish sometimes he would knock that sucker, knock that door open, and come in and enforce. He doesn't, though. He waits outside the busyness and the noise for you and me to open the door. He waits just outside. Are you familiar with this? We, if you come often enough, you've seen this iceberg. The, the question that we're asking is not the tip of the iceberg. Tip of the iceberg is the 10% of your life that people see. It's the external Peter. It's the outside performance Peter. Underneath the iceberg, the 90% of our lives, that is the core of what causes us to act the way we do, respond the way we do when stresses, pressures, when your car breaks down. It's the thing that causes us to act the way we do, respond the way we do. By the way, underneath the iceberg, what lies underneath there are the deep emotions like fear, doubt, regret, security. The things that causes us. And by the way, the things that bubble up to the surface when you're quiet, when you're alone. And the question is, does Jesus have access to that? Does Jesus have access to what lies underneath the things that you may have kept? Your fears, your insecurities, your past, your doubts. The other thing about the painting, can I just, a couple other things. Uh, can you go back to that, please? Uh, you notice, if you look, the door is worn out from knocking. And if you can't see the door, you can see the shrubs and the flowers. What is this saying? We have Jesus who comes back again and again and again and again knocking on the door of our hearts day after day, week after week, even when we shut him out, even when we say, I don't want you to go near that, even when we say, I don't want that access to that Jesus, a God gracious, a God loving, who keeps coming back and again and again and again, knocking on the door of our hearts and saying, will you give me access to that so I can heal you, so I can free you, so I can redeem you? Why wouldn't you allow this Jesus into your heart? Why would you shut him out? Because even when you do, he keeps coming back. And here's the thing. Does he seem angry? Does he seem like he wants to yell? Does he seem like he wants to rebuke? We have a God, Romans 2, 4. It's his loving kindness. Why? Leads us to repentance. What does Jesus do when his kindness doesn't work? This is an amazing thing. He resorts to more kindness. A God who keeps coming back, knocking on the door of your heart. Christians, Christians, believers of Jesus saying, when will you give me access to that stuff that lies underneath? See, the thing is, 
as I thought about you guys and prayed about you guys and thought about my own life, I think there's some of us for whom it's hard-heartedness and we just don't want to. But you know what I think for the vast majority of is on why we don't experience life transformation and healing, why the knocking of the door of our hearts is, you know why? It's because giving Jesus access can't happen in a hurry. It can't happen when your life is loud. For many of us, reason why Jesus doesn't have access is not hard-heartedness. It's because giving Jesus access requires us to slow down, to be still, and to be quiet. I just have to ask, is this resonating with anybody this morning? Many of us suffer from what I've called hurry sickness. Anybody know what hurry sickness is? Yeah, hurry sickness. I think we're drawn to hurry. So remember last week I said, number one shampoo in America rove to the top because somebody combined shampoo and conditioner so that it would save the time to, you know, Condition our hair, shampoo at the same time. Dominoes rose to the top because they promised to deliver pizza in 30 minutes or what? Less, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the reason why I think we're drawn to hurry. Can I just be honest with you guys? Number one, when we're hurrying, busying, it allows us to not deal with the emotions that we don't want to deal with. When we're busy, when we're hurry, the resentment, the anger, the things that we've held, the underneath the iceberg stuff, it allows us to just ignore it, just ignore it, just ignore it. But can I just tell you something? When you ignore it, eventually you leak. Eventually it goes somewhere. And I found that the people that it goes to and affects are your family, your loved ones. The second reason I think we're drawn to hurry is because it masks something else, and that is we are addicted to being productive. We live in a culture that says your existence is justified when you're being productive, and so it makes us feel important. That's why the sermon series will be almost impossible for some of us not to hear but to live into because everything in you will cry out, this feels unproductive, and why should I do it? Transformative prayer is supposed to be unproductive. You're supposed to just be with Jesus. Um, some signs of hurry sickness. I just want to quickly go over in case this is uh, foreign to some of you guys. Number one is you constantly speed up daily activities. Can anybody relate to this? Anybody know what it's like to constantly speed up daily activities? Because you actually believe the lie that if I hurry, I, have enough, I, I, I will actually have more time. So you read faster. Have you, by the way, noticed how fast I talk? Do you know what my wife says? My wife says, if you preach like a normal person, you would preach for an hour and a half, which is right. I talk really, really fast. When I listen to people, sometimes if my soul is anchored, I nod even faster so that I can get them to speak louder. <laughs> the other thing about hurry sickness is that waiting is torture. I do that game when I am driving and I see two lanes. I try and guess which is going to be the shorter lane. 
grocery store. There's four lanes at Mariano's. I'm trying to figure out which is going to be the fastest. And oh, by the way, don't ever, don't ever catch me behind the 15 items or less line and have someone in front of me with more than 50. Don't. I am not a Christian at that time. Can I just share something really embarrassing? Airport security checkpoints literally used to get me physically sick. I used to go to airports, and once I saw the security checkpoint, the lines, my body would have this physical sensation. In my 10 months leave, I begin to say something. This is very practical to me, myself, especially when I'm in the car and I'm an angry driver. I say to myself these days, Peter, how much time are you really saving by doing this? 15 seconds? 30 seconds? Peter, how much time are you really saving? Second symptom, multiple tasking. You guys all know this. Can I just tell you something? I've noticed something at coffee shops when I hang out. People, when they eat, there's nobody that's, I did this just for the sake of it. One day I sat at a coffee shop and I just ate my sandwich outside and didn't do anything else. No headphones, no computer, no reading, no checking phone. I just literally just sat there. And the, I felt like everybody was just staring at me. It was almost as someone was going, that's a strange animal over there. What is he doing? Is he actually eating and not doing anything while he's eating? Yep. I just say, how often do you engage in three, four, five things? Second, third, clutter. What is clutter? Anybody know what clutter is? Hurry sickness, you're what? Your nightstand is filling with books you never get to read. You buy time-saving gadgets, but you don't have the patience to read through the instructions <laughs> so it never gets used. There's like two things at my house. That's the other thing, though, that happens in clutter is that you forget important dates and appointments. Fourth, inability to love. Hurry and loving are not compatible. To love well requires us to slow down. You cannot love well. Hurry. Can I ask you, child of God, follower of Jesus, the spiritual maturity litmus test is how well are you loving? How well are you loving these days? Are you judgmental? Are you critical? Are you short with people? Amazing thing about Jesus that I've noticed about the gospel is that Jesus was incredibly busy, but he was never, what, hurried. He never did anything that hindered his ability to love God and to love people. He goes about his day with a million things to do, never hurried, being fully present. And the last sign of hurry sickness is sunset fatigue. And what is sunset fatigue? Is that you come to the end of the day and you are so tired and so exhausted that you literally give leftovers to the people that you love the most. And you begin engaging in escapist behaviors to avoid fatigue, like watching too much TV, overeating, overdrinking, watching porn, gambling. And you lose sense of wonder and sense of gratitude.
Dallas Willard said, if anybody takes her spiritual life seriously, they need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from their lives. You cannot live in the kingdom of God hurrying. You cannot love God and love others well hurrying. The danger for all of us is not that we will renounce our faith, but we will settle for a shallow, superficial form of faith. Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, an appearance of godliness. Can I ask you a question? In what ways does your current pace of life enhance or diminish your ability to give God complete access in your life? In what be honest with yourself this morning. Your current pace of life, does it diminish or enhance? And for those of us sitting here actually believing the illusion, I need more time, I'm going to tell you something. Unless a deeper solution is found, the more time is going to be filled up in the same way that you currently use your time. Child of God, friends, Let's get two terms as we continue our journey that I think are critical for us to come around. And then I'm going to show some scripture, and then we're going to go to the main text we'll spend for the next three Sundays. What is solitude? Here's a simple definition of solitude. Solitude is the practice of being absent from people and things in order to attend to God. Silence is to be absent from all the inner and outer noise to attend to God. Silence deepens and enriches the practice of solitude. Silence enriches and deepens the practice of solitude. I want to show you real quickly how profound and how widespread these uh, principles are in Scripture. Just three, four of these, and I'll make a couple comments, and we'll go to our main passage for today. Psalm 46.10. Will you say this with me? Ready? Here we go. Be still and know that I am God. One more time, ready? Be still and know that I am God. The Bible says there's a kind of knowing that could only come when we are what? Some of the most important things in our lives that need to be known, solved, or figured out will not be discovered, solved, or figured out at the thinking level, but they'll be heard at the listening level. Let me say that once more. Some of the most important things that you need to solve and figure out are not going to be solved and figured out at the thinking level, but they will be heard at the listening level. Next passage, Psalm 37.7. Say this with me, ready? Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. One more time, ready? Be still before the Lord and wait patiently. By the way, can I encourage some of you guys to commit some of these to memory? One of the effects of living a loud, busy life of hurry is that you favor short-term gains at the expense of long-term consequences. 
if you don't slow down and be quiet, the temptation is to favor short-term gains and long-term consequences. Israel didn't want to wait for Moses to come down from the mountain, and they worshiped a golden calf. I wonder if there's anybody here today, because you can't be still and quiet long enough that you are being tempted to favor short-term. I need it now for long-term consequences. Exodus 14, 13. Say that with me. Do not be afraid. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Being still is the difference between you fighting for God and God fighting for you. Being still. Being still. Being still in your marriage, in your relationships, in your career, in your confusion, all the things that you're concerned about, worried about, all the things that drag you down, all the things that being still, Jesus says, the scripture says, can be the difference between God fighting for you and you fighting for God. Be still, God says. I've got that, be still. Be still, two more, two more, real quick, Psalm Four, four, when you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent and trust in the Lord. And Habakkuk 2.20, last one. But oh God, God, it is in his holy temple. Quiet, everyone, a holy silence. Listen, the words listen and silent, do you realize have the same words, same letters? The words listen and silent have the same letters. You cannot hear the voice of God without listening, but you cannot listen to God without being what? You cannot hear the voice of God without listening, and you cannot listen to the voice of God without being silent. And I found that God often speaks the loudest when I am the quietest. I don't know who needs to hear this, but let me say the following. If you're needing to hear from God, if you're not willing to hear everything God has to say, eventually you will not hear anything God has to say. If you want to hear his comforting voice, you have to hear his convicting voice. And sometimes his convicting voice comes in the form of rebuke and correction, but oh, friend, it's always loving. Can I get an amen? It's always loving. And sometimes the things that we want to hear the least are the things that we need to hear the most. You cannot hear without being silent. When I began my journey 
or solitude and silence. I needed scripture to ground me. It, it was so foreign to my Christian experience because I didn't grow up in church cultures that talked about this and taught this. It was so foreign. I needed scripture to ground me. And more importantly, I didn't need scripture just to teach me. I needed scripture to show me that what I was experiencing was indeed of God. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And Elijah became one of these biblical grounding scriptures for me. So I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. I'm going to lay a couple major big principal anchors here. And I'm going to have you do something at the end with me that I think will be critical as we continue our journey. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah Here's the background. The nation of Israel in absolute spiritual disarray. Why? Ahab, the king of Israel, marries Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon, and one of these political alliances. And something happens in the nation of Israel that had never happened before, and that is Jezebel essentially makes the worship of Baal, a fertility god, state-sponsored. So there are seminaries to worship a Baal going up. There are priests and priestesses that are being trained. And the nation of Israel in spiritual disarray, and in this state, God raises up Elijah and calls him to this prophetic ministry. And we find, pick up the story, in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tashib in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will, be, uh, there, will be, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Essentially what Elijah is saying to the king is this. Our God, God of Israel, creator God is the one true God. And to show you that Baal is not ultimately the God who provides the produce and the livestock and the weather, there will be no rain in this land until God says so. Then listen to what happens. Verse 2. Then the word of the Lord, underline that word then. Then the word of the Lord, after Elijah speaks a powerful word, came to Elijah. Verse 3. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide yourself in the Kirith ravine, east of the Jordan. Kirith, by the way, literally in Hebrew means separation. Elijah ministered a powerful word in front of the king, the nation of Israel in spiritual political disarray. He speaks a powerful word, and the next thing that God says is, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to get away, conceal, the word hide literally means conceal yourself, hide yourself in the desert where you will have an extended time of solitude, silence, and stillness. Can I show you a map? Samaria is where Elijah originally is. It's the first time I noticed this map and noticed this something. You see where the Kareth, Kareth Ravine is? You see the miles? Do you see the length? What would you say? 30 miles? 35 miles about? If you're walking, how long is that? Does anybody know? Anybody walk 35? Well, how long of a travel is that? Does anybody know? A few days at least? Here's why I think God did that. And I could completely relate to Elijah. As I'm walking to the Kirith Ravine, here's what I'm thinking. God, who has time for this? Can anybody relate? 
God, who has time for stillness and solitude and silence? If anybody could relate to the next one, I need you to kind of let me know you could relate to this one. God, the nation of Israel is falling apart. If I don't do something, then no one will. And so, anybody? Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. If I don't, then nobody else will. You know that the nation of Israel. So as I am walking the 30, 35 miles, I am wrestling with this. And as we'll see later in this journey, not only did Elijah think the whole, who has time for this, but he actually thinks, God, if I don't, who will? Because he had the audacity to say to God, I'm the only one left. To which God says to him, actually, there are 7,000 others like you. I just need you to sit with that for a second. God, if I don't take care of new community, who will? Imagine God saying to me, there are 7,000 Peter Hongs out there in Chicago. How many of us? How many of us have actually come to believe the illusion I don't have time for this, and if I don't, who will? Do you know what solitude and silence and stillness is? Please listen. Solitude, silence, and stillness is to come to grips with the most liberating truth should you accepted and the most liberating truth when we lean in when we deliberately embrace solitude silence and stillness is this i am not in charge of outcomes i peter hong am not in control I could live with the illusion that I am in control, that I am indispensable, that I cannot possibly get away. But silence and solitude, it's God's grace offered to me to lean in and accept the gift of invitation to release and to let go and to say, God, I am not performing. I am not producing. I am not fixing. I am not healing. I am not solving. I am not fixing. But that's okay. Okay, because you're God and I am not. It is a deliberate practice, church, to release our futures, our reputations, all that we so cling on to and say to God, God, you are God and I'm not. I trust you. Be still and know that what? I am God. Be still and wait patiently because the Lord will fight for you in solitude and silence. We lean in and we say, God, I trust you with my family, with my future, with my job, with my relationships, with my marriage, with my finances. You're God and I'm not. Is this good news to anybody? And yet, so hard to do. This is why you and I struggle with this. Do you really believe that as you give time to be away with God, that you trust God to take care of your family even better than you will? 
that God has good intentions for you and your future without your active participation. And oh, for some of us, to actually believe that we are not indispensable and that God has thousands of other kingdom workers who will do just fine without us. Can I get an amen? And listen to what God does. I love this. I lo- you guys know how much I like scripture. I love God's sense of humor. Verse 3, leave here, turn eastward, and, and, and then hide in the Kirith Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook. I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. Verse 6, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. God takes care of Elijah, what? Every single day. Daily. Why? Give us this day, Jesus says, our daily bread. Do you know why God does that? Because if he provided weekly, you wouldn't seek him for a week. You'd say, God, I'm good. Come check around in a week. God says, Elijah, you don't understand. Do you realize that every single moment of your life, you're being sustained by me? Do you know what the problem is? God is so good at what he does, we take it for granted. God is so good at what he does. He's saying, Elijah, Elijah, don't you realize it's me who takes care of your needs every day? Don't you realize that I know what you need, nation of Israel needs, even more than you do, and more capable of caring and doing what needs to be done. Elijah, don't you realize I'm God. And as you give this time away, all that you need is supplied by me. You notice, by the way, it's a brook and not a lake. Same principle. For some of us in here, we are so capable of handling everything on our own on a daily basis that we have stopped growing spiritually. For some of us in here, we are so capable of managing things on a daily basis that we have actually believed the illusion that we are in control, that we are in charge of outcomes and not God. And that's why once in a while, once in a while, God will actually send us a marriage we can't fix. Financial situation setback that we didn't see coming. A wayward child that we've prayed for years. And sometimes God does it out of grace to go, Are you in control? Are you in charge? Can you fix that? Can you solve that? Can you manage that? See, this is the reason why for years I knew this internally, but I struggled with solitude and silence and stillness because for me, I'll just speak for myself, it became about trust. Can I trust God? Can I trust God with you, church? Can I trust God with my family? 
Can I trust God with my finances? Can I trust that even when I am literally not doing anything because I am still and alone, that God the Father is actively at work? Fulfilling good purposes for his glory, for my good. What did you walk in here with this morning, caring? With concerns and burdens. Man, with this, this is what Brene Brown said about trust. Trust is choosing to risk making something you value vulnerable to another person's action. Distrust is deciding that what is important to me is not safe. It's first. Let me show you a picture. This is how I was about a year ago. As God called me to solitude and silence, I came carrying heavy bags, concerns, cares, and I'm walking up to God, and God says, come away with me. And there's God saying, and I'm carrying all this thing, and I'm staring at him. I'm like, I want to... I want to, it's, and all the stuff I was carrying made it awfully hard and clumsy to receive his embrace. And at some point, I had to put that stuff down. At some point, I had to put that stuff down. I needed to step back and say, everything in me wants to scream and cry out, I don't have time for this. If I don't, who will? Yet the gentle nudge of the Holy Spirit persistently said, let go. Trust me. When you walked in today, you were given, listen to my instructions real quick, and then I'm going to lead us in a short exercise. You were given an uh, envelope that said trust on the front. Inside the envelope, is a sheet of paper. I need you to take that out right now. Kevin, you can come on up. Here's what I need you to do. And I would, if I could just have everybody do this, please everybody, please everybody in this room, whether you resonated with what we shared this morning, whether you struggle with this or not, everybody in this room, in that piece of paper, there are pens and pencils available in your proofs. On that piece of paper, I need you to take a moment. I need you to take a moment. And I want you to pen to paper. Something about pen to paper that I've noticed is powerful. I need you to jot down all the cares, concerns, burdens, the things that you're overwhelmed with, the things that you've been carrying, the bags, if you will. I need you to jot that down. As many as you want, you could write as many as you want, but be completely rigorously honest with that. And I need you to jot that down. Marriage, children, future, job, finances, a difficult relationship. And what I want you to do when you're done with that, when you're done with that, is to put it back inside the envelope and I need you to hold on to that envelope. And throughout this week, throughout this week, and I'll get more into, because of time I can't go into today, next week I'll talk more about practical ways, practical ways of, 
of, of establishing solitude and silence. But for this week, carve out some time whenever you can, even if it's just two, three minutes, and I want you to take that envelope out, and I want you to, as a concrete, tangible reminder, say, God, I'm releasing this to you for this moment. God, these cares, these concerns, right now in this moment when I'm not doing anything, I'm not solving, I'm not fixing, I'm not healing, I'm not doing anything, God. I'm just giving this to you and in solitude and silence and stillness, I'm trusting. I am trusting that you are at work. I am trusting that you are more capable than I will ever be. I am trusting that you have good intentions for me. I am trusting that you are my good, good father. And this morning before we end, if you're done with that, 